Uh, Lord, we do thank you for gathering us here together. And um, Lord, we pray that we would be overwhelmed by your glory and grace and mercy and how uh, you communicate your grace to us, that your Holy Spirit would be uh, manifested in this place as we uh, look into your word and uh, see what you have to say uh, to us uh, about the sacrament of your body and blood. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, one, uh, thank you so much for being here because uh, if anything, uh, this is an appreciation for the work that you do. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do Sunday services without you. And that is uh, not, uh, I, I just can't say that enough. And so most of you are, are behind the scenes. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about the acolytes who like parading around. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, but uh, uh, most of you are, are well behind the scenes and uh, you keep things in order and keep us afloat. And so thank you so much for your service uh, in that. Uh, but uh, two, we're also here to uh, share in God's word uh, together. And, um, and I appreciate your willingness to give up time again today to have a conversation about uh, the Lord's Supper. And this conversation is long overdue. Uh, I admit that in a very real way, I have failed you as your rector in communicating clearly and often something that is of great importance. And so our subject matter this afternoon is the Lord's Supper, uh, or also known as Holy Communion, uh, but more specifically, uh, the nature of consecration within the context of our communion services. And my hope is that this will be a conversation, so I plan on asking you questions to generate some talk along the way, and I would welcome interruptions if clarification is needed uh, as well. And as in anything in the Christian faith, our discernment should start with the Word of God. So if you have your little scripture sheets uh, on the back side, let's turn our attention to uh, the first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 11 as our key text this afternoon. And my hope is that that which seems unclear uh, would become clear as we look at the Bible together. Our aim today is clarity, therefore this is a place where hard things might need to be said and hard questions might need to be asked. And I can understand how some of what I will say uh, will be received as judgment. Uh, in our changing the liturgy we use for Holy Communion, uh, there is an understanding that I'm painfully aware of because I experience this too, a reaction of, you're telling me what I've done my entire life has been wrong. Now, this was not the intent. Uh, what we are looking for at the Advent is gospel clarity. In fact, this luncheon is a clear indication that confusion does exist and did exist concerning Holy Communion. So in our language, let's agree that this is not meant to offend, but to better understand what the Bible has to say and therefore what we believe, which affects what we do. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm actually going to back it up to verse 17 to give it some context. So 17 through 34. This is Paul speaking, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from, I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of the Lord. Well, I wish he would have said what the other things were. Uh, we might not be sitting here today if, uh, if that were the case. But Well, I'm going to leave 17 uh, up through 22 to the end, uh, but that's very important because what has happened in the Corinthian church is divisions, especially divisions over class, have, uh, have existed. Uh, so it was a bit like a church potluck where everybody would come and they would gather together and there were those that just didn't have the means to provide for their own food. And yet there was still uh, a ritualistic understanding of the sharing of the meal. In fact, it's often uh, in modern terms, if you've got any friends who are Moravians, they have often what's called a love feast, an agape feast, which is a sharing of a meal together. Um, uh, You should always have Moravian friends because at the very least you score on Christmas uh, because they make those nice ornaments and they make those really great thin gingerbread cookies. Uh, but uh, they still practice that as well as others where they would gather together for a meal and they would also share in the Lord's Supper. Uh, And uh, Paul says here, here's the order for that supper. And he recalls what Jesus did with his disciples in uh, that upper room. And so uh, in verse 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, moving on. So Paul is immediately saying, this is not the tradition that we've developed. This is not what we've decided we're going to do. This is not how things are done in Corinth, but they might be done in a different way in Ephesus. But he appeals to what? Jesus and what he received from Jesus. Uh, Both, one, uh, the Word, uh, the Gospels, uh, how they are relayed here, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which actually go into detail as to what happened in that upper room, but also the revelation that Paul himself received from the Lord Jesus, which he references uh, throughout uh, the book of Acts, and we see when Jesus manifests himself uh, to Paul. So the authority that he's appealing to is the authority of Jesus 
and the authority of the Word. We do what we do because this is what Jesus did and what the Bible has to say about it. And so he goes in and uh, you probably in your mind's eye, or I am at least when I'm reading these words, I'm imagining what I'm actually doing at the table. Uh, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is is the new covenant of my blood in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes again and so one of the primary messages of holy communion is what or it is the primary message i should say verse 26 that's right for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes again And so on the one hand, it's a looking back to Jesus' death on the cross, which our liturgy goes way out of its way to reinforce. So terminology and phrases like, who made there, right, who made there, which is where? On the cross, who made there 2,000 years ago, or whenever you happen to be relating to it, uh, Jesus uh, was the once and for all satisfaction for the sins of the world. Uh, but not just that, but while we're doing that, we're also what? Looking ahead uh, to His triumphant return. Right? So we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. So, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Here's where we all start scratching our heads. What does that mean? Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So what's happening? Well, let's have a conversation about this and unpack uh, all of it. I'm going to pick on uh, Charlotte for a minute uh, because she needs it. Um, No, I mean that in the nicest way. Charlotte actually brought up a very good issue several weeks ago. It was the 7.30 service, and I was setting the table, and I did uh, what the altar guild really loves for me to do, and I I had a spill. And uh, and it was a significant enough spill that it went through not just the fair linen, uh, but it soaked through uh, to uh, the, the bottom. And so after uh, being judged by their eyes, uh, Charlotte uh, came in and asked a very good question. She said, how am I to clean this linen? And I asked, well, what do you mean? She said, well, did you spill it before you prayed or after you prayed? So am I to treat this wine as if it's consecrated or if... It's not, right? You tell me. Uh, because right now, I mean, what, what Charlotte's bring up is a good point because you have a collision on multiple levels of what might constitute uh, consecration. So on the one hand, let's look at it this way. On the one hand, I spilled it before I, we went into the service. It was while I was setting the table. But it was on the table... When I spilled it, so what do we do? Okay, so coffee, what were you going to say? 
We've just, let's go home. Oh, we got to the end. Thanks a lot, Coffee. I'm not, never sending you anything to read again. Um, no, so, but let's unpack that along the way. Um, I, you know, I, what, at what point would we, at what point is something consecrated in, in the service? Now, that's a little bit of a trick question because I think that we would all have different answers to that question. And so I actually said, well, I'm going to go to a source that actually believes in more than just a consecration, a setting apart, but a transubstantiation. So I scoured the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, and I couldn't find anything about a moment in which the elements go from being bread and wine to the body and blood of Jesus, and in their theology, it would be the literal body and blood of Jesus. To touch the bread and to touch the wine is to actually touch the physical Jesus in the Roman Catholic tradition. So I called my friend who's a Maronite priest, and, uh, and I said, at what point in the service is, uh, is it uh, the body and blood of Jesus? And he started laughing, and he said, you would have to ask. And he said, and, and I should have known better because if you know anything about the Maronites, not only do they put on really good food festivals, Maronites as well as Melkites are very interesting because they use an Eastern rite, but they're in communion with the Pope. So they submit to the authority of the Pope. And what they have in their service is what we often call an epiclesis. And that is part of the 1979 tradition. It's part of the Scottish tradition which is that there's a point in the service where you invoke the Holy Spirit over the gifts and bread of wine that they would be either unto us the body and blood of Jesus or in the Scottish tradition that they would be to us uh, the body and blood of Jesus. And the Maronites and the Eastern Rite Catholics, they have that in their service. But guess who doesn't? Roman Catholics. If you were to go to a Roman Catholic church, there would be no invocation of the Spirit over the bread and the wine. And so, when does it become the body and blood? At what point can you say, this is a point of consecration? Well, what Roman Catholics would say, and I would, even, I would echo this with them, that uh, the service that we use often is, even though it bugs me that we use it, here's where it's right. The Holy Eucharist. Who knows what Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. The whole service is consecratory. The whole thing brought together to echo, to build a little bit on what uh, Coffee said is, is consecratory. But now let me say this. That doesn't mean that we should say, well, it's just bread and it's just wine. And so let me say why that is. Because the whole nature of consecration is that something has been set aside for a definitive purpose, right? And that's the bread and the wine. Now, the prayer book originally called for the use of everyday bread as well as wine. So the elements that were used were things that you would find around your house. Now, I would ask you, have you ever been to a cocktail party where communion wafers are served? No. I mean... There's, 
There's no mistaking what those wafers are for. In fact, uh, they've never been mistaken for bread. Uh, and so already, just by the way that they look, uh, we know that they're different and they're not just something that you're going to put a little piece of cheese on uh, and a little piece uh, of, of ham. And yet, um, I'm losing my spot here. I'm going off script, thanks to Calvi. Uh, but the... Um, and so, but at the same time, because they are set aside for a definitive purpose, we should hold them uh, in respect and with a somewhat reverential nature because of the use for which they are intended. Do you now, well, because objectively speaking, well, let me give you an example. Uh, I've got a friend. He's now dead. He was dying of cancer of the jaw. And he came every week to our communion service at St. Helena's in Beaufort. And uh, his jaw was wired shut at this point. Uh, and he would come he, uh, forward for healing prayers. Uh, but then he would come forward uh, for communion. Uh, but because his jaw was wired shut, he was incapable of physically eating and the bread and physically drinking the wine. Did he commune? Was that a valid communion, or was he left without being able to partake of the body and blood of, of Christ? Well, of course he did. Uh, of course he did. And, and that's why we use the words of administrative, administration, you know, uh, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed upon him in thy heart by faith and with thanksgiving. And so the feeding on Christ is not a physical feeding. Uh, he's not ingested in our bellies, but we feed on Him spiritually and we ingest Him in our hearts. And so if you're looking for an objective presence in the actual bread and in the actual wine, uh, I'm not willing to go that far. No, you could no, you should treat it with reverence in the sense that it's set aside for a purpose, not because Jesus is in them. Because he's not. He's in our hearts. Which is why Paul goes on and why, if you read the admonitions for Holy Communion, uh, when he says, actually the language is a lot stronger than that's translated. <laughs> for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Uh, the language here is actually, and this is, uh, and Coffee's got it right, I think, that those who come forward in faith rightfully receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They commune with Him uh, in a way uh, that is special. Uh, it's not just, uh, I'm not a mere memorialist. I don't think that it's just it's just a remembrance, but actually that communion is a means of grace and God communicates to us through the bread and the wine in the same way that you've heard the gospel preached audibly, uh, you're now having the gospel preached to you with more senses, visible as well as, as the sense of, of taste. And so absolutely it communicates that. But what Paul is saying here is that those who come forward 
uh, and you can look at the articles that I've printed out uh, for reference, those who come forward who are unbelievers uh, not only don't receive the body and blood of Jesus, not only don't communicate, uh, but, uh, which is why we use the word communicant uh, to describe that, uh, but they actually eat and drink condemnation on themselves. Why? Because actually the, the literal Greek here says that those who eat unworthily partake not of Christ, but actually participate in the shedding of Christ's blood in the same way that the crowd did who yelled crucify him. So this is not just... You don't, you don't get the benefits of Holy Communion. This is actually, you're making a mockery of it and eating and drinking it, you're, you're eating and drinking judgment and damnation uh, upon yourself because you've not rightfully discerned uh, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I should have used that qualifier somewhat. We should treat the, the bread and the wine uh, with respect and reverence but because of what it's going to be used for. But questions, and I understand this because a lot of it is based on our tradition, but questions like, well, what if bread or wine isn't on the table, but it's in the niche? As if the Holy Spirit kind of has a fence around him and he can you know, only get to a certain point uh, in, in the church. Uh, I think that there are two sides of the same coin. On the one side... We're not pointing to an objective moment of consecration in the service itself apart from receiving. But on the other hand, which I think is saying the same thing in a different way, in a more rightful way, even so, we should treat the bread and the wine as if in a sense it's all consecrated for a certain use. And so doubling up and worrying about whether or not the chalice is mixed or whether the, the, the bread is mixed, actually doesn't affect the efficacy of, of the sacrament uh, to the believer, uh, or, in fact, the damnation uh, to the unbeliever. Yeah. No, no, no. No. Uh, in fact, the, you're, you've hit on something that the Reformers dealt with mightily because that's the problem that you had at the time of the Reformation when they tried to have communion more frequently. And when they did, they tried to get people to come to the rail and people wouldn't for that reason. So on the one hand, absolute, I think we've got the other problem in America now or in the American church, I should say, that we have people who, sim, who treat it flippantly and simply come forward without examining themselves. But how did they lose their credentials on that? What, what part? The, the, the one you're talking about. Why did they leave that out? Oh, no. So, the, so there are exhortations in the Book of Common Prayer. There are two. One says, you need to think about this because you'll be eating, drinking, and judgment upon yourself. But then there's another one that says, don't not come because your conscience is troubled. Meaning, I mean, because here's the thing is that if your conscience is troubled and you're struggling and you wonder whether or not you can receive worthily, that actually is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to you. You're exactly the person that needs to come, to come forward. So the, the judgment is against unbelievers coming forward and, and receiving communion. Now, there are those in the church 
that uh, believe that, uh, and even John Wesley believed this to an extent, that communion was a converting grace. And so the Methodist church still has a completely open communion rail where they say anyone uh, who, who wants to come forward, uh, come forward. Now, our canons say what? Who can receive communion? Right, you have to be baptized. And it's not baptized, it's not just being baptized. It was being, that's right, because the assumption is that, that the, when the canon was created, it was to fence the table and say that you had to be a believer, and if you were a believer, you'd been baptized. And so, but I even clarify that now because I think it would be unpastoral for me just to say, well, if you've been baptized, it doesn't really matter if you believe in Jesus, just come forward. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and even the old, who's a 730-er? Ye who do earnestly repent and believe, right, we, and, and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to need, lead a new life following the commandments of God, draw near with faith and receive the sacrament humbly kneeling, right? So, there, so at the 730, we still do uh, a sort of exhortation. So it's not... It's not, I've got to have right belief, I've got to have it all together. And, and let's face it, there are times when we come to the rail where we are troubled. Uh, there are times that we come to the rail, and when we receive uh, the bread and the wine, I, we can really feel our hearts lifted up, and we feel like we've been brought into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then there are times where we go up, and it doesn't feel like the fellowship is that sweet. Um, but also, and I've made mention of this before, that when we come forward to the rail, we come forward to the rail together as, as the body of Christ as a family. And so we're communing together. So it's not just a vertical thing. There's also a horizontal thing happening uh, as well. And I've got stories about people not here. This hasn't happened here, although maybe I just don't notice it. But in Beaufort, we would have people switching lines in the aisles so that they could be at opposite ends of the communion rail, which was only 15 feet wide to begin with. Uh, so, uh, but they thought it was okay for them to come to the rail with somebody that they were not in love and charity with as long as they weren't in close proximity. And, of course, th that makes a mockery because communion is also supposed to be a symbol of our unity. And, and when you've got that going on, and so that's, let's, let's just... Uh, I, I want to answer as many questions as possible. But going back to the beginning of the verses I read, chapter, uh, in verses 17 uh, down to 23, uh, that's Paul's big concern is the divisions and you've made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And these, um, you know, I do think he says something funny. He said um, uh, in verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So actually, there's the positive side of heresy. Um, Augustine once said, uh, I thank God for bad bishops uh, because bad bishops actually clarify uh, true belief. If you just had good bishops all the time, it, it could get muddy. Uh, but here Paul is saying is that, yes, it's a sign of our unity in the body of Christ, uh, but it's become a source of division for you. And so I want to confess up front that you know, I try to be very aware of what are secondary and tertiary issues, and I don't want to offend anybody's devotional practice, especially if it draws them closer uh, to the Lord Jesus. Absolutely, 
uh, not. And so this is not some uh, attempt at getting us into a certain theological vein, although if we are, we should probably be Anglicans. Um, but it's my bigger concern is making sure that the gospel is clearly articulated. So I've actually heard people refer to Holy Communion as the sacred mysteries. And I've asked them, well, what's so mysterious about it? Well, what makes it mysterious is when layer upon layer upon layer upon layer is added to Holy Communion, when Paul actually says, it's not mysterious at all. This is what it communicates to us. It communicates to us that Jesus died on the cross and we look forward to his coming again in glory. That's what it communicates to us. Now, we can talk about the mystery of its efficacy and how it communicates God's grace to us, absolutely. Uh, but I, I want to make sure that we're not veiling the gospel and that we have a clear understanding. Now, I realize that I've opened up a tremendous can of worms and, uh, and I can see people getting out kindling and sharpening pitchforks. Uh, but, um, but I think that for our basis of, of what we do and how we do it, um, I think we really do need to look uh, and see uh, what uh, the Bible has to say about it. And we also see how our formularies uh, in the articles are in accord uh, with that. And so I open it up to questions, comments, and concerns. Please, there's, and I, I think that questions are the best because they help with clarification. And you can say, I think you're wrong, and, and whatever. But, oh, I went, just a second. We'll get a microphone. Go ahead, Margaret. Um, going to the, when you said, at what point is, uh, are the, the elements actually consecrated, isn't that where um, in, in the part of the service where we say for in the night in which he was betrayed, Do, isn't that the beginning of the prayer of consecration? Yeah, so that it's colloquially known as the prayer of consecration, which um, ebbs and flows, uh, which uh, Colin Buchanan, do you all know who he is? He's preached here for the Lenten series. Colin Buchanan for decades was the head of the liturgical commission for the Church of England. And, uh, and he would say that, that it's unhelpful to call it that because if you're consecrating something, which means to set it aside for a purpose, that's already happened. And one of the, um, one of the things that even the, even the Roman Catholic Church won't say that that's when it's consecrated because that would cause an immediate division with the Eastern Rite people. And uh, even uh, in, in our tradition, it's very funny because uh, our bishop, uh, he really likes the epiclesis, the invocation of the Spirit on the, the bread and the wine, and that's his prerogative. Uh, but I've heard people say that it really isn't communion unless you do that. And yet you've got Roman Catholics who don't do that and yet have a much more extreme view of what it means to make it the body and blood. And so maybe if you got a Roman Catholic priest and you bought him a couple drinks, Margaret, uh, he might tell you, yes, I think that that's when it happens. And sometimes they'll ring a little bell uh, to let you know that Jesus has uh, showed up. But nowhere in the catechism and, and nowhere else will you find Roman Catholics pinpointing 
a point of consecration. For us, and I, and I would, again, Roman Catholic liturgical people and theologians, I would agree with them that the entire service is consecratory, and even the 79 prayer book would agree with that to an extent because the whole idea of calling it the Holy Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, that it all uh, is part and parcel of that. And interestingly enough, that the prayer book is actually against reserving anything left over. Uh, even the 1979 prayer book allows you taking communion left over from one service. It only allows for two purposes. And even Henry Parsley, if you all remember that, he used to be a big stickler about this when he would come and visit, uh, about using stuff when and how. But there are only two instances of the 1979 prayer book allows you to use leftover communion from one service for something else. The first instance are shut-ins. And that's, that is just an, extent, an extension of the table, right? People who can't be there, and so they share in our fellowship. And I even like what a lot of churches do, where they actually bring up the lay Eucharistic ministers and give them the communion, which the altar guild has put in the little kits, and they pray for them, as, and they leave the service and go straight to visit the shut-ins. Uh, that, that, is the, that is what it's supposed to be at. Anybody know what the only other time you're allowed to do it? You leave the leftovers from the Maundy Thursday service to be used for Good Friday. Otherwise, you're supposed to consume the bread and the wine uh, in a reverent manner. And so I would say that th those were the two options forward. So we either consume it uh, or uh, uh, we use it for communion kits, actually three ways, uh, or we use it uh, for future services uh, going uh, down the road, which is really our practice uh, right now. But um, I did ask somebody once in a conversation about this, well, why, why do the, the clergy, and actually lay people are, are welcome to do this as well, why do they eat the bread and drink the wine at the end of the service? And the response of this person was, well, because it's Jesus. And so what's happened is that actually they're getting the opposite of what that moment was supposed to affect. The reason why the clergy and those serving at the table consume the bread and the wine was so that nobody could carry it out of the church. That nobody could actually mistake it for being uh, the body and blood of Christ, literally, that so it was actually to prevent people from, from believing that. Uh, but obviously it gives off an impression that this is so special that we have to consume it uh, right here. It is special, but that's not why we consume it. Okay, so let's, yeah, so that's a very good question. So Charlotte and anybody else. Who can baptize in the Anglican tradition? Anybody. That's right. And you have to say words over the water, or if you were, if, if you know, let's say that you were on a desert island and you evangelized the, the person with you and they became Christians and you just took some water and, and baptized them there and you got rescued and you went back, would that be a valid baptism? Yeah, of course it would. Of course it would. So one of the interesting things and good things about the articles and why I put it here, I didn't know that you'd be this clever, Charlotte, but 
Article 15, I mean 25 of the sacraments, I'm not going to, to read it, but one of the things that they went out of their way to talk about is you can't look at the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper differently in respect to how it communicates God's grace to us, right? So in the same way, we have a double standard in our canons that says anybody can baptize, but only special people can administer communion. And so if the person is receiving the bread and the wine in faith, whether it's administered to them by, I mean, after all, um, lay Eucharistic ministers, they're not ordained. And so I know that for some Anglicans, it's absolutely anathema to think that lay people would administer communion, but we do that. I mean, we do that for our shut-ins. And what uh, makes that a valid communion is not that a priest touched it, uh, but actually uh, that they're receiving it in faith and they've received it as, as a means of grace. Now, I'm not for lay people standing up at the table as a matter of church order, uh, but to differentiate and to say that it's more special coming from one person than another uh, would be actually to undermine the nature of the sacrament and to make it about the person administering it rather than about what it actually is and what it's about. Um, so, I mean, there's still churches in our diocese that, that don't have lay people administering the chalice. Uh, and at one point in the church, that was a, a bit scandalous. Uh, but, but we have lay people administer the chalice too. And it's kind of funny to me when people say, well, it's okay for lay people to administer the chalice, but it's not okay for them to administer the bread. Well, that's, that's foolishness. Yeah, of course. Well, that's a very, yes, they've been set apart, for, set apart for a very specific purpose, but it's not, um, but actually they, uh, I, and I, the canons allow it, it's just as legitimate that they would administer bread uh, as well. Uh, and in a bind, we've done that uh, a couple times uh, at the Advent um, where we just needed somebody to, uh, to do that. Actually, interestingly enough, one of the things, and I didn't get to this this morning, uh, at the Conference of Savoy, which uh, all of y'all are, uh, read about all the time, and it's not about, uh, about a swanky hotel in London. Uh, actually, it's where the hotel is now, uh, in that area of London. But uh, what the Presbyterians wanted was they didn't want people coming forward to the rail and kneeling for communion. They actually wanted to be able to sit in the pews and receive communion that way. Uh, and... Um, uh, which is still the case today, if you go, although a lot of Presbyterian churches do have people coming forward. Uh, but uh, their point was, and I think that it was well made, uh, that Jesus' words, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, uh, this cup is the cup of the New Testament, uh, and is my blood which is shed for you, uh, those aren't words of consecration. Those are actually words of distribution. Right? Those are things that Jesus is saying as the elements go out. Now, I don't think that that means we should be taking communion sitting in the pews. As a practical matter, I think it's important, and I don't know if you've ever seen me do it, I actually take my Bible with me and open it to 1 Corinthians 11 every time I go to the table as a reminder that what I'm doing is springing out of the Word, and I'm praying that people would indeed uh, see, uh, taste, hear Jesus uh, in what we're doing uh, at, uh, at the table. 
Do you have anything to say about the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion? Um, so, all right. Uh, well, you had a question. Sure. All right. All right. Uh, oh, coffee. Not, not so much a question, but a comment, if you will. There are a number of people, me included, and my wife, who felt some discomfort at the change to the service. Mm -hmm. What you've done today goes a long way to alleviating a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what Zach sent out was helpful. And a lot of just sitting down and reading and deciding what really counts is helpful. But nonetheless, there are people... And, and a rather significant number, I suspect, who have been disturbed. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you wish you'd done this earlier. Mm. I think it might have settled a lot of minds yeah. and, and set a lot of us at ease. As a cradle Episcopalian, by osmosis or whatever reason, I understand the Eucharist a lot better now than I did 60 years ago. It is, a, it, is a, it is a gift. It's a celebration. It's a thanksgiving. And it's, it's not like they say to be carried about and held up. And, and I understand the reason for not elevating and fracture because that is, it's comforting to the Catholics, but it's not to me and it's not to a lot of people. Right. And, and, and I, I say this in sympathy with you that I wish you'd done this about a year and a half ago. In a, in a, in a Have you been talking to my wife? She says that all the time. <laughs> well, why didn't you say that a year no, ago? And, and now, and now in, a, in a lighter vein... <laughs> Another thing the Presbyterians wanted at the Council of Savoy, they wanted the responses of the laity to be limited to saying amen and not participating. Yeah, they didn't want the prayer. laity to be involved at all because they couldn't they be wanted, trusted. They wanted no participation from the lay people except to say amen. Now, here's the great irony, too, is that at the, at the, at the Conference of Savoy, do you know what the Presbyterians wanted? An invocation of the Holy Spirit over the bread and wine. And so, actually, if you're into that, you're a Presbyterian. Just remember that. Yes, it wasn't the Stone Age. Uh, it was. Yeah. Well, it's well. Ah, Charlotte. All right, John, go ahead. Something Coffee just said leads to my question, which I had before he said it. But the last line of Article Twenty Eight reads: "The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about." lifted up or worshiped can you unpack that a little bit for us in non-elizabethan language yeah so thank you john okay so the council of um the fourth lateran the fourth lateran council which met and I, I i might get my dates mixed up but it wasn't until the 13th century that the that the church and of course at that point it was the only church articulated transubstantiation. Actually, there were people in the church, this was a big fight in why this council came about, because there were people under the umbrella of the Catholic Church that believed in a spiritual presence, and they had to figure out what it was. So that was the first time they unpacked that. And within, now there are obviously a lot of people who believed in transubstantiation up to this point, which is why it was codified at that council, but it was within, I think they were able to date it within five months of the council ending, there were Corpus Christi processions. So Corpus Christi processions are when they take the priest's host, and you know what the word host comes from? It's the same word that we use for hostage, victim. 
So, so that's, that's medieval language saying that this is the, the sacrificial bread. They put it in a, in a monstrance and they, have, they, they carry it about, uh, lift it up, uh, and, uh, and now I th- this is extreme language because I don't think that, I mean, I know Roman Catholics who would say we don't worship uh, the bread and the wine, but we do acknowledge it, acknowledge it as, as, the, as the Lord and the presence of the Lord amongst us. Um, and so you'll have uh, in churches uh, Corpus Christi processions where they process around with the monstrance. Uh, you'll even have an Anglo-Catholic um, congregations, what they call the benediction of the blessed sacrament, uh, where you kneel before uh, the priest's host uh, and pray. Um, and so it was against that in one instance. Um, it was also against uh, reserving it, meaning keeping any leftovers. Uh, and, you know, for better or for worse, you know, even our architecture um, says something different than what we're talking about today. So we actually do keep reserved elements in a safe. Why? Well, we're afraid, well, we're not afraid they're going to walk out the box. We're afraid that, that someone might come in and steal it and because we think that they're so significant that we keep it under lock and key. I mean, even to the extent that I tried to open it this morning, and unless you're Paul Petznick, it's impossible to open it. I mean, it's like you've got to tap three times and then kind of use your elbow and uh, wiggle the key. So it's, it's a tricky thing to open. Um, but, you know, that gives the impression that, um, you know, having a tabernacle which is, and what's the tabernacle? It's Old Testament language. It's the dwelling place of the Lord uh, amongst His people. So the Reformers said, you don't do that. You don't reserve it. Uh, You don't carry it about in Corpus Christi processions. Uh, You don't lift it up. And even that was a reference to the lifting up uh, at the fraction. Uh, Because uh, piggybacking on what Margaret said, having an understanding of ringing the bells, that this is the point at which... Uh, it becomes that. But funny enough, this is why, I mean, this is why this is a hard conversation because the inconsistencies abound. Because when does the 1979, where does the 1979 prayer book move the fraction to? To the end. And then they use actually what is a mutilation of, uh, of uh, what, what Paul intended. Uh, they break it then at the end, Alleluia, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Rather than, I don't have any problem somebody saying, Hallelujah, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us or was sacrificed for us in that context. But, um, but it was against that, uh, elevating uh, the elements in that level. Some people will actually go so far as to say that even at the end when we say the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed upon Him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving, would be an elevation of the elements. But I don't think that's true because I think that that's another thing is that it reinforces the idea that communion is not about what we offer up but about God offering Himself to us. It's a, it's a man-word sacrament. It's not a God-word thing. And that's why after we receive, then we can pray, here we offer and present ourselves uh, as a living sacrifice unto thee. So that's what the Reformers meant. Somebody else? So what I would, um, well, I don't know what, what I would say at this point, except to say that 
what does this mean for um, the regular practice of the altar guild? Yeah. And how do we how do we clarify that? Yeah, I don't think, th and the acolytes. And so the acolytes, I don't think right. that it's again. Um, I don't think that it really um, references, or I don't think that it necessarily interrupts our practice in the altar guild, except that there wouldn't be a need for ribbons. I'm sorry? A blue, I'm not. Oh, down the I think that they, sh so if they're not consumed, I think that they should be dealt with in a reverential manner. And so I think using the piscina is absolutely appropriate. Uh, I think that if that's part of your devotional practice, that would be fine. But again, it's because something's been set aside for a purpose, not because Jesus is in the linen. No, that's just, it's the line. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry I spilled it, Charlotte. You're still not over it. I know. Um, so. That's true. So it really wouldn't have had, uh, I mean, it, I, other than the ribbons, I don't know. I mean, maybe y'all are thinking of things, well, but what about this as you are right now? When it comes to the acolytes, I don't think that it changes the practice at all. Uh, I'm not sure what the implications of this uh, would be uh, for them, except that what's most important is communicating the gospel to people when they come forward to receive. So my heart sort of sinks when I go to a church or when someone here says the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, or the cup of Christ, the cup of salvation, because that's not what my hope and trust is in. My hope and trust is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. Preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And so I'm sure those of you who have been through chalice bear training or uh, that those are the only, we use the words of administration. That's what we use. Not because we're trying to convey, you know, some sort of Protestant identity, but because those words convey the gospel. And that's, isn't that, I mean, that's what my aching heart needs to hear when I come to feed on and, and drink on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think that's why, um, and, and I'll tell you, one of the things that probably works against us more than that is the clock. And I don't want us to sort of do, you know, when Frank Limehouse left, I'm going to pick on him. When Frank left St. Helena's, one of the things they gave him when he came here was, you know, those little disc shooters for kids uh, that would fit communion wafers so Frank could just kind of, you know, go because Frank was just, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, I mean, even this morning, I was touched. There was a little boy who came forward to receive, maybe 9, 10 years old, and he lingered a little bit at the rail praying. He gets it. He totally gets it. That, and, and I've used the image before, but that's our altar call, right? That's our altar call. Come forward and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So if any, I, it would be because the acolytes are so public that I would just affirm the public nature of that ministry and how you interact with people and how you minister to because you're ministers, uh, you're up front, how you minister to them uh, in, in that context. And I mean, some of y'all have seen some of the craziest things. I mean, I, you know, inevitably it happens at Christmas where you're going down the row and you give a guy a piece of bread 
And it's always the men. You give a guy a piece of bread and he puts it in his mouth and then he sees, oh, you can dip it. And he takes it out and dips it back in. Uh, or I had a lady lose her bridge. Her teeth came out in the cup and she went in after it like Jacques Cousteau. And away she went. And um, so, you know, how do we, ha- I mean, it would be, you know, it's, it's easy to be like, you idiots. Um, but how we handle those people who just aren't used to our traditions and so that we would very lovingly say, get your hand out of the cup. Uh, but where the rubber meets the road, I, I did a summer at, um, at, a, at an Anglo-Catholic parish, uh, so I, I know how the other side operates. And they used pita bread uh, for communion. And I had uh, gone down... Uh, the row, and I flipped the bread over. I'd kind of work from one side to the other, and the entire other side was covered in mold. And so I placed it up on the table, and and the Anglo-Catholic rector, when he came back up, and he said, well, we're going to need to consume the bread. And I said, well, this is where your theology really fleshes itself out, because what are you going to do with this moldy Jesus? And uh, you know what he did? No, he didn't. Absolutely not. Uh, he, you know, his faith was weak. Uh, and so uh, he, so I mean, that's right. So I would say that, you know, actually the compromise that existed in England for a long time, and this sounds very crass, but I hope you get the point, is that the Anglo-Catholics in the Church of England promise not to reserve it, and the evangelicals promise not to feed it to the birds. So that was, that was, the, the sort of status quo uh, of the Church of England. And I think that both of those extremities are very problematic. And, and I mean, throwing it to the birds as well as thinking there's an objective presence. One, one question that does come up for the acolyte sometimes is when we're behind there and um, like you had re- referred to, maybe not all the chalices, are, they're poured, but they don't make it up to the table. And some are there, and we need them for communion. What, uh, I mean, some have been concerned about whether they're able to grab those and use those if they didn't make it up to the table or not. So Yeah, so those, you should treat that like anything that has been set, it's already been set aside for the purpose of of Holy Communion and is able to communicate uh, and be a means of grace uh, to the person receiving. And So So whether it's in the niche or on the table. It's consecrated. Using the language that, that we've done. Jean. Oh, sorry, Mildred. No, ladies sorry. first. Um, all right, I'm getting back to just semantics. Mm-hmm. If we use what we have called consecrated wine, it's been in the uh, sacristy closet. Mm-hmm. We do not need to put a purple ribbon on this. It is just wine, although it has been set aside at one point, it'll just be set aside again. Is that correct? That's correct. Because and so... Anything at the table or in the niche that comes back to the sacristy, we just preserve it and treat it with reverence. That's correct. That's correct. Because it, all, it, it has been set aside for a purpose. Now, see, I mean, we're kind of in a bind because you've got people who, um, you know, you do have to, there's a big craze in the diocese for using, uh, ba- having people bake bread. Um, I don't like, I don't like, using wafers, but I do like it for practical reasons. Uh, so we don't have to, it would get a lot more complicated if we had crumby 
bread kind of all over the place and, and what we do with that because then it wouldn't be an issue of what we do with it after. We'd have to eat it because wafers will keep... I mean, when, when Jesus comes back, the only two things left will be cockroaches and wafers. Because uh, it, it, Although, have you ever gotten one and you're like, this is from the 50s? Uh, you know. um, so uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have to deal with that on a practical level. But in the same way, I, because it, we should treat it all with reverence because of the nature that it has been set aside for Holy Communion, and, and we should treat it that way. And if you've already seen, you know, if it's in the chalice, it, it should be dumped down the, the piscina. Absolutely. Gene McCall. I think my question, Andrew, if, if, if we're, are we, we're using 1662, we're using the 1662 prayer of consecration, right? In, in a sense, yes. Okay. So what rubrics are we using? Well, we're following the rubrics of the the prayer book in that we do manual acts here. So I lay a hand on, and I mean, I've even had people say that, like, well, you technically haven't laid a hand on everything that's going out to the people. But that practically is an impossibility to lay hands on everything that we're using in a communion service. And the touching of it doesn't make it consecrated. So we are following, I, I still think that we're following the rubrics, but we're, we're not maybe going so far as, as some people might interpret them. Okay. When I was studying, uh, I guess to be confirmed, I think, but anyway, early, early on, we learned the seven sacraments right. that were outward and spiritual signs of an inward and uh, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. Right. Now, Article 25 seems to distinguish among those in which Christ was directly involved. Yes. So were we left with two classes of sacraments? Yeah, so there's one class of sacraments, and the sacraments in the church are the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those five commonly called sacraments, uh, that is to say confirmation, penance, orders, matrimony, and extreme unction, are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel. Uh, but, and, and even, our, even the 1979 prayer book does that. So it's always funny to me when people say that there are seven sacraments, and yet the 79 prayer book says there are two. And, and it even differentiates because with these other things like marriage and um, confirmation and, and other services, uh, those are under a section of the 79 prayer book called pastoral offices. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So we're not saying that, they're, that they should be poo-pooed. We're not saying that at all. Uh, but what we are saying is that there are only two sacraments ordained of Christ, and that's Holy Communion and Baptism. Those other things I do think are beneficial uh, in the life of the church, but they, they are not means of grace in the same way that baptism and the Lord's Supper are. Although, I can, you know, they do have a sacramental nature about them. Um, they just weren't ordained of Christ. I mean, marriage being the most obvious one that has all kinds of symbolism uh, going on when it comes to uh, the union between Christ and His church. 
But even the 79 prayer book says it's not a sacrament, which doesn't denigrate it. But, um, but I'd also say, too, that baptism and, and the Lord's Supper are much, they have a, a more general audience then some of these things are very particular. So if these are sacraments, these are channels of grace, and you start saying, well, ordination is a sacrament, that means that some people are getting a little bit more grace than you are, which is not true, which is not true. Have a seat. So, and I'm, I realize that um, as, I mean, what Coffey said, that understanding better now what the Lord's Supper is, 60 years later, uh, this is a third rail for clergy. Uh, we don't, we don't want to touch this thing for, for anything because we care about our people and, and having conversations like this is hard because we're afraid of, of upending people's proclivities and people's often deep-held uh, beliefs. Uh, but certainly it's really... Uh, it's really important, and I wouldn't be a good pastor if I wasn't willing to be uh, honest with you and, and to share with you in God's Word and, and see how Holy Communion tells of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a tangible gospel uh, that uh, we are, um, uh, that we share in. So, um, so if, if other things have come to mind, uh, please do feel free uh, to email me. Um, uh, or write me a letter. I like writing letters. Uh, if you send me a letter and it's anonymous, uh, I won't respond because I can't respond. Uh, and so um, I will, uh, I'll shred it before I read it. So that will be that. So if you have a question, ask one. Let's pray. Oh, Charlotte. Title four of the disciplinary canons. I've been disciplined. I can't do what? <laughs> I, I think that that deacon in Florence would love to talk to you in the way that I did today. Uh, but no, I really am grateful for, for y'all and, um, and uh, thank you for coming. Uh, it's, it's been a long day uh, for all of us, uh, but let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring about clarity in our lives, and Lord, where hearts are troubled even now, uh, that you would stay them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, where we're wrong, that you would correct us, and Lord, that you would keep us from self-righteousness, and Lord, that we would um, be kept from division, but would keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.